0: Like many other Indian liberals and, well, progressives, I suppose, um, who quite like the Constitution generally but have the sense of embarrassment about some of the constitutional provisions, uh, most, most, most of these uh, embarrassing provisions are found in the Directive Principles chapter. Uh, and I'll, I'll come to, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the background, what, what Directive Principles are. And, and these provisions relate to the prohibition of cow slaughter, the uh, prohibition on alcohol consumption um, and such like. So, so provisions which are divisive in, and have continued to be divisive in the Indian polity that seem to be based on, on some uh, sectarian uh, slash religious basis rather than uh, what Rawls would have called a public reason. Et cetera. So that, that got me going, and I and I started looking at the debates of the Constituent Assembly to figure out the purposes behind putting these provisions into the Constitution. And the conclusion that I reached was that these provisions, rather than being constitutional embarrassments, are in fact constitutional triumphs. Now um, that is what I hope to uh, explain to you today in, in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. so. So here is a problem for all constitution makers, which is that uh, constitutions tend to be aspirationally enduring. All framers write, unless the constitution is self-consciously an interim constitution, most framers write constitutions in the hope that these constitutions are going to stand the test of time, that they will endure. And uh, I'm going to assume that that at least, if that constitution is broadly democratic and broadly liberal, that its endurance is a good thing. We can talk about it and discuss discuss it in Q and A if you if you want to. But I'm I'm going to take that as a given because constitutional instability usually comes with societal and political instability, with violence, etc. And and that change within a constitutional context, um, at least that's my normative assumption, is better than change outside the constitutional context. So given this aspiration of endurance, uh, the diff- this very aspiration of endurance is also is what also makes constitutions really difficult to draft. because all parties at the negotiating table, well, if they have joined the negotiating table to begin with, know that this is designed at least, it's intended to last for a long time. and therefore, current losses and victories, political losses and victories are going to be locked for a long time in future. What this does is it imposes a very high transaction cost to constitutional negotiation. Unlike a simple political dispute, the losers of a political dispute at least have the hope of a victory tomorrow and therefore can seek to reverse a political loss today by, by changes in the near future, people who lose out in constitutional negotiations tend not to have that hope. And that's why this very feature of endurance encourages intransigence in constitutional negotiators and thereby imposing an extremely high transaction cost for the negotiators. So that's, that's the analytic frame within which constitutional negotiations take place. Now, there's some quantitative data we have about how long constitutions in fact last around the world. And I don't know if some of you will be surprised by it. I was when I found out that the average life of a constitution is 19 years or so. Right. So by those standards, the Indian constitution has done pretty well. If endurance is, is one of the tests for, for figuring out the success of a constitution, the Indian constitution is not, not done... Um, too badly. Now, the broad argument that I'm going to make is that some of these divisive provisions in the constitution played a key role in securing the buy in of certain types of politically uh, powerful dissenting groups, which may well be linked to the long endurance of India's constitution. So that's that's broadly the structure, or the goals, of the paper. In terms of constitutional theory scholarship, for those of you uh, who know the literature, the intervention that I'm going to make is this. Most of the scholarship on constitutional accommodation, how to accommodate groups that are going to be um, locked out of power in a constitutional negotiation, most of that scholarship is focused on one particular type of group which is uh, ethnocultural minorities. So you can imagine why ethnocultural minorities, religious minorities, racial minorities, are scared of a uh, democratic framework because they're numerical minorities. They worry about being locked out of power for all times to come. And, uh, and the scholarship has developed, uh, has talked about various tools that, that constitution drafters can use to get these minority groups on board these tools typically tend to give some sort of political insurance to the minority group some sort of power sharing deal it can be a guaranteed political representation in the legislature or northern ireland is in news a guaranteed power sharing deal in the executive or a political veto on certain types of decisions so these are or or separate electorates where um, these groups can make sure their representatives go go to parliament etc so 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 these the forms of political insurance for for ethnocultural minorities can take uh, a variety of forms, but that's where the literature is largely focused in. And that's what this paper is going to do is to is to highlight the different concerns of a very different type of dissenting group. And these groups are not ethnocultural minorities; they are not identity groups, or at least not primarily identity groups. These are ideological groups. These are groups that define themselves in terms of their commitment to a particular political ideology. In the liberal constitutionalism framework, these tend to be illiberal groups. Uh, the most common examples of such groups tend to be groups that want to constitute a theocratic state or groups that, te- that want to constitute a state with a particular economic ideology, uh, usually socialism uh, or communism. because. The liberal framework is seen as pre-committed to a capitalist mode of organizing the state. So, so these groups pose a different type of challenge to constitutional framers, and their accommodational needs are different from ethnocultural minorities. And the main difference, to my mind, is this: I already explained that ethnocultural minorities in a democratic setup tend to be politically pessimistic. They don't see, uh, they don't find much hope in in, in, in democratic politics without any special deal, without any uh, power sharing deal. Ideological groups, on the other hand, tend to be, at least that was um, my impression from the Indian debates, tend to be politically optimistic. A, they don't speak in the name of particular groups. They tend to speak in the name of the people or the real people. So, uh, of the groups that I'm going to talk about today, the Gandhians in the Indian context talked about uh, real India living in villages and therefore the real people being people who live in villages. The socialists talked about the real people of India being poor, and the Hindu nationalists as the real people of India being, um, well, Hindi-speaking Hindu, uh, hindi speaking and, and Hindu uh, religion. So, so because these groups tend to speak in the name of the people, they tend to be politically optimistic because they they assume that sooner or later the majority will come to their viewpoint that sooner or later in a fair democratic system they are going to capture power so they don't need political insurance they don't need guaranteed power sharing what they need is a guarantee that the constitution is not going to stand in the way of their achieving their radical agendas when they capture power so that's that's the analytic frame and in, in its backdrop, I'm going to explain uh, how how this all of this panned out in India and and how uh, the framers, particularly Ambedkar, uh, used some of these tools to to accommodate ideological dissenters. So so the story well let me give you some background of the Indian Constituent Assembly. It was elected in 1946. India had still not become independent. Um, but the negotiations for independ- independence had begun. It was elected under a colonial government on a limited franchise through indirect elections. So the legitimacy, the democratic legitimacy of the assembly was, was under serious challenge and the, socialists, the Socialist Party actually boycotted the assembly because it wasn't elected on universal franchise. The Congress, par- in part because of the questionable legitimacy of the assembly and in part because of its own uh, enlightened leadership adopted a policy of uh, political accommodation uh, of its opponents, of its political <coughs> opponents. So it invited people like uh, Ambedkar himself, but a lot of people representing the whole spectrum of uh, Indian political uh, scene uh, to, to join the assembly on its own ticket. The Muslim League had walked de- decided not to join the assembly to begin with, and for the f- for the first year or so of its functioning the assembly did not really do any real work in the hope holding out hope that the league will come back uh, and the assembly did not want to present the league with fate accompli because that would complicate matters only after partition uh, half of partition is determined that uh, the assembly starts doing real work with with the rump of the Muslim league that that stays behind in the country a draft so various subcommittees of of the assembly work on different chapters of the constitution the fundamental rights committee the minorities uh, committee on federalism etc and they present their report to the drafting committee whose chairperson was uh, dr ambedkar the drafting committee releases a a very a draft constitution in february of 1948 uh, and this is a largely liberal and democratic constitution. The constitution remains in the public domain for most of 1948. Uh, The assembly stopped meeting in January. There's a long uh, period of recess and the assembly meets again in November 1948 to discuss the draft constitution. So the draft constitution has been in the public domain for about 10 months or so, maybe a little less than that. So. So that's sort of where our story starts, 4th of November, 1948, when Dr. Ambedkar moves a motion regarding the draft constitution. And this is sort of midpoint in the working of of the drafting of the Constituent Assembly. Now, as soon as he gives his speech introducing the draft constitution, and inviting the assembly to endorse it, it becomes amply clear that there are three very powerful vociferous groups which are not happy, which give an extremely hostile reception to the draft constitution. And these groups, well, it's always slightly uh, untidy to to, to identify groups which don't do, which don't themselves self-identify as being part of groups, and many of the individuals within these groups straddle multiple ideological spectrum, but, but it's still heuristically helpful, so I'm going to stick to calling them groups. The first of them are the Gandhians, who 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 endorse Mahatma Gandhi's vision of of a self-sufficient, autarkic republic of villages um, where alcohol consumption and cow slaughter is prohibited and they don't see anything Gandhian in the draft constitution. The second dissenting group are the socialists. Now, although the Congress leadership at this stage, Nehru and Ambedkar, and a a whole range of other people self-identify as socialists when it comes to state policy, they were nonetheless liberal constitutionalists. So for Nehru and and for Ambedkar, in the paper, I've given quite a bit of evidence from various things they say at various places, where they're very clear that in government, they want the state to enforce socialist policies, but they don't want to lock down socialism in the constitution. So so while being socialist uh, in their political agenda, they are liberal constitutionalists. The people I call the socialists want to go further. They want a constitutional commitment to socialism, and they're not happy with with a liberal constitution that permits the government to do pretty much pursue any economic ideology that it likes. Um, This is a bit more nuanced, and we can go into the Q and A if if you're interested. But that's broadly (coughs) still true. In particular, the socialists want (coughs) the nationalization of all natural resources, Uh, and (coughs) and they cooperative uh, organization of agriculture and industry in the constitution. The third group that feels that it has completely lost out of the constitutional negotiation are the, are the cultural nationalists, the Hindu nationalists, who have a broadly Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan agenda. They want Hindi to be the national language. They want uh, Hindu symbolism, uh, if, if not if not India being recognized as the Hindu Hindu nation to begin with, which, which is sort of the demand, but they understand that that's not going to be viable. They, they still want a lot of Hindu symbolism strewn around in the constitution. They want the country to be called Hindustan. They want um, the, the flag to be called Sudarshan, et cetera. With the Gandhians, they also want a prohibition on cow slaughter, and, uh, and some of the demands of these three dissenting groups overlap. So, th- so, this is the context. We have a, dra- a liberal democratic draft constitution before the assembly and three politically extremely powerful dissenting groups, the Gandhians, the socialists, and the Hindu nationalists, <coughs> opposing the draft constitution. In fact, uh, not only is Ambedkar berated in some of the responses, some of the language is extremely harsh, and Ambedkar is almost blamed personally in part because he has not been particularly tactful in describing in Indian villages as 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 dense of uh, uh, backwardness and uh, anyway, uh, so there's a lot of heated exchange. <coughs> but uh, in that very first debate, Ambedkar soon realizes that that he has to do something to salvage the draft constitution and that mm-hmm. and that it cannot pass in the face of such uh, vociferous hostility. So. <coughs> Even in in his reply to the motion, (coughs) he's already hinting at at possible accommodation of some of these demands in the directive principles chapter. And I'll explain uh, a bit more about that in a moment. But we need to note that these groups not only criticize the draft constitution, as soon as the debates move to substantive parts of the constitution, they move wrecking amendments. So the first thing the assembly does is starts after the motion on the draft constitution has been debated, it starts discussing the first four constituting articles of the constitution, mm-hmm. which would constitute the nation, lay down what its identity is, its nature is, the preamble, all of that. And, um, and each of these groups moves wrecking amendments to these constituting amend- uh, articles of the constitution to incorporate um, their radical, illiberal agendas within within the Constitution. And that is when uh, a separate group that, again, is even looser than the than the three groups I've already identified. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just call them the defenders because there is no ideological unity in that group. But these are largely Congress leaders. Nehru, Ayangar, Ambedkar, who's not a Congress leader. Um, they come together and start um, negotiating, dealing dealing with these dissenters to defend the draft Constitution. The defenders move very quickly with their um accommodation agenda now it's not particularly clear from at least the text of the debates how well thought through is the strategy of using directive principles to accommodate the dissenters there is there is an interesting um, uh, hint in that by the 18th of november so remember we started on the 4th of november By the 18th, the assembly has discussed the the motion on the draft constitution. It has discussed the first four articles. Logically uh, and structurally, the predetermined agenda was to move on to the next chapter of the constitution, which would have been citizenship, then to fundamental rights, and then to directive principles, which is chapter four in the draft constitution. On the evening of the 18th, the chair suddenly announces uh, that we are going to take up directive principles tomorrow members protest saying we are not prepared this is very sudden why, why do you want to change one of the defenders stands up and says oh uh, it's a cosmetic it's it's just for convenience director of principles is going to be easy we'll get over it quickly and that's why let's 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 get get it done with of course as we'll see director of principles were not easy at all they took a very long time of debating to to get through my suspicion is that uh, that the defenders decided to get all these groups on board before any other substantive part of the constitution was debated because uh, this this move on the part of the dissenters to keep moving wrecking amendments would have continued otherwise. So uh, that's, that's my reading of it. If any of the historians in the room can confirm that through an external source, I'll be extremely grateful. Um, okay, so what what do the defenders do? The constitution already had borrowed the draft constitution had already borrowed from the Irish Constitution (coughs) a, a set of provisions which are called directive principles. Now, these were constitutional directives to the political branches of the state to programmatically achieve certain transformative goals. Programmatic in the sense that there was a realization this is not going to happen tomorrow, that it'll take time. These are transformative goals, transformative of the society, of Indian society generally. These goals included what we will today call social rights, education, health, nutrition, um, things like that, and also some of the things we don't find in constitutions today very much, which are uh, distributive justice agendas, equalizing uh, uh, what well, removing deep inequalities in wealth, and things like that. So these were these were directives, and they and they were not meant to be the constitution specifically prohibited courts from enforcing it, I- enforcing any of the directives. So they were primarily political norms. Now, what the what the defenders do through the course of the debate on directive principles is incorporate the key agendas of the radical groups as constitutional directives, and there's a lot more work which I'll tell you in a moment uh, into how these are incorporated, but the very fact of incorporation does, does this. Because of the programmatic nature of directives, they incrementalize these agendas. Now I'm using the word incremental in a technical sense. In the scholarship constitutional incrementalism is jargon and it it is meant to signify the idea of deferring particularly contentious issues from the current moment to the future and from constitutional to political resolution so it's it's a way of reducing the transaction cost while framing the constitution to give you an example the american constitution locked in the slavery provisions for 20 years so that is a form of incrementalism where the framers say this is too divisive if we try to resolve it now the whole project uh, will come apart because we just simply cannot agree let's agree to do nothing for 20 years and then we can resolve it hopefully the constitution would have taken roots by then Uh, and anyway as 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 i started by saying political resolutions are more easily reversible than constitutional resolutions so the transaction cost for a political resolution is lower so so incrementalism moves the decision to the future and to pol and the political domain from the constitutional domain so directive principles became a tool of moving some of these agendas to the future and to political domains, to the Hindu nationalists demanding a prohibition on cow slaughter by, making, by incorporating a directive asking the state to endeavor to prohibit the slaughter of cows, the Constitution does not decide the question. The advocates still need to win elections and still need to convince legislatures and enact laws to do so. So, so that, was, that was the first thing that, these, uh, that, that incorporating them in the directives did. The second thing that, and this is primarily Ambedkar's uh, work, mm-hmm. the second thing he does is he also contains the radical agendas as he constitutionalizes them. So the very texts that he accepts, it's a very lawyerly exercise that he embarks upon. But at each stage, he's (coughs) trying to accept the most defanged, the most de-radicalized, the most diluted version of the radical agendas. And it's fascinating to read the assembly reports where the previous day there has been this vociferous argument and no agreement has been reached, next morning people come to the table and, and one, one of the Gandhians will stand up and say, oh, um, last evening I've reached a deal with Dr. Ambedkar on this formula. Right? And the formula is is again the most uh, defanged one. Now the assembly always accepts everything that Ambedkar accepts, at least in these negotiations. So he's, he brings a huge amount of personal credibility for the majority in the assembly. But there were three particular tools, three particular containment tools that he uses in de-radicalizing these agendas. The first was that of dilution, just diluting the radical demands. So this, this is most es- evident in the, in the decentralization demand of the Gandhians, where they wanted uh, self-sufficient, self-governing village republics. The directive that Ambedkar agreed to ha- says nothing of self-sufficiency, only self-government. So he, he he reaches out to the most moderate of the radicals, strikes a deal outside the assembly, and preempts other groups by getting uh, that particular moderate version accepted by the majority. The second, and I think the most interesting containment tool that he uses um, is what I've labeled instantiation. So. Although the cow slaughter directive makes it to the constitutional text, it's not a self-standing directive. The formula that Ambedkar agrees to is to make the state's duty to to secure the prohibition of cows an instance of its general duty to organize agriculture on scientific lines. So the directive reads, the state shall endeavor to organize uh, agriculture and animal husbandry on scientific lines, and in particular shall seek to secure the prohibition on the slaughter of cows. Same with uh, alcohol consumption. The state shall endeavor to raise the levels of health and nutrition for, for the population at large, and in particular seek to prohibit the consumption of alcohol. What he's doing through instantiation is leaving only the general first part of the provision as the as mm-hmm. the controlling provision for that directive. Even to this date, cow slaughter advocates, at least in the public arena, at least in courts and in legislatures, have only one argument left some pseudo or scientific line about the value of cow for agriculture. No other argument is is constitutionally available to so certainly no sub- sectarian argument is constitutionally available to these groups. The third thing that we see uh, in the language directive, a lot of people reading the Indi- Indian Constitution don't realize that there are directive principles outside part four of the Constitution. One of the examples is um, is the language directive in article 351 of the Constitution. One of the one of the key demands of the Hindu nationalists was Hindi as the official language, uh, and some of the more secular uh, framers wanted Hindustani, which was a mixture of Hindi and Urdu, to be to be sort of the main language um, of the group because it's spoken by both Hindus and Muslims. So the directive in Article 351 calls upon the state to develop Hindi <coughs> by borrowing from Hindustani. So it. Qualifies it, it still gives primacy to Hindi to satisfy the Hindu nationalists, but then requires the state to to grow Hindi, to develop Hindi by using by 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 borrowing from from Hindustani. So, so these are the various containment tools that um, that the framers use while incrementalizing the radical agendas. Now, now why? Why would this satisfy the dissenters? It obviously did not satisfy them to the extent that they wanted. They they wanted their agendas to be enacted by the Constitution. That doesn't happen. And still, the dissenters now know that when they capture power, and in a federal system that's not well, as I explained, they're already politically optimistic rather than pessimistic. But in a federal system, that might happen sooner than later because they might at least capture power in the states. When they capture power, the Constitution is not going to stand in the way of their securing their, or at least, albeit contained, radical agendas. What's more, by incorporating them as political duties on the state, the Constitution not just permits them to do to pursue these agendas. It grants a veneer of constitutional legitimacy to these agendas. In the paper, I say more about how Ambedkar saw these contested directives differently from some of the social rights directives. But um, I'll, I'll leave that to one side for now. <coughs> uh, so, so that's what that's what the dissenters get out of it. They they know that they they will live to fight another day that the Constitution is not going to lock their agendas out. What's more, the directives will ensure that these agendas will always be on the agenda of the state, that, that the opposite party will not. Um. Why did um, the Liberals accept it? Well, the, first, the prize for the Liberals is that all these groups sign up to the draft Constitution, which, remember, is still largely liberal and democratic. In fact, if you read the debate on the final day of the Constitution in 1949, representatives of all the three dissenting groups point to the directive, point to these directives and say that is the reason why they're accepting this flawed Constitution. Right? So, so the main task of getting a broad consensus around the constitutional document is achieved. Secondly, uh, well, because it was contained they thought well at least the price they are paying is less third it's incrementalized for both groups so the liberals and the progressives will live another day they can still fight these agendas politically in elections and and the history of of india since independence bears out the the fact that uh, the constitution does not settle these questions they're still politically quite divisive and finally so i've called this aco- this type of accommodation expressive accommodation uh, the constitution acknowledges expressively the radical agendas of these groups but it's calibrated expressive accommodation so what is the other expressive space in the constitution most famously it is the preamble of a constitution you know the american constitution famously made the phrase we the people so famous in, and and people look to the preamble to find the identity of the nation, of the state that is being constituted. Right. Now, these groups wanted their agendas to go to the preamble. And what the defenders got was a more attenuated, a more calibrated expressive acknowledgement, not in the preamble, which goes to the core of what the state is going to be, but in some Relatively more obscure provisions of directive principles, where you're giving an expressive guarantee, but not not of the same salience and significance that you would uh, in in the preamble. So anyway, I've spoken a lot, so I'll, I'll stop there. But my obviously, this paper is not enough with with a sample size of one to to confirm the hypothesis uh, that. That this type of expressive accommodation can lead to uh, a, a, a a broader consensus around a constitutional document, which in turn can lead to to, to to the endurance of of national constitutions. But my hunch is that that part of the success, part of the endurance of India's constitution, might well lie in in the broad uh, consensus that was secured using directive principles at the framing. Thank you.